Welcome back to the Upgroup Meet the Masters podcast series. I'm Adrian Blair, and my guest today is Fabian Vesemann, co-founder and group CFO of WeFox, the disruptive digital insurance broker. Fabian won the award for excellence in finance and has been instrumental in building WeFox into one of the most successful unicorns in Europe, I think valued at 3 billion there last round a few months ago. Fabian, congratulations on your award and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me and thanks very much for the award. Brilliant. So you set up WeFox with your co-founder, Julia. Tell us a bit about the business itself. What was it that led you to set this thing up in the first place? My co-founder, Julian, is an insurance broker for many, many years of his life. And one evening we were sitting at a dinner and we were discussing kind of what are the industries and areas that we could look at. And then he said, why not insurance? Right? Insurance, there's very little technology that came in over the last decades. Um, and we started looking into it and we realized, wow, this is actually a gigantic opportunity. We, from the beginning, built WeFox based on the clear hypothesis that we believe in indirect distribution. 90% of products are being sold still today through indirect channels. And that's that's an area that we focused on. And WeFox today is a digital insurance company that distributes own products, but also third-party products, right? So that means that we have two main revenue streams, one coming from commissions of selling anything like an Allianz, Basler, any third-party insurance company, and also premier ourselves from selling our own products. And we do this um, through a technologized sales force of a human being, which has allowed us to have much lower CAC than uh, the competition, which allowed us to have much better economics um, because customers stay longer. So last year have grown by more than 150% um, year over year. It's just extraordinary that rate of growth at the scale that you're at now. It's incredibly unusual. I imagine your role as CFO must have changed enormously through that period from you know when it was just the two of you to the scale that you're at today. Can you tell us a bit about how your CFO role has evolved? Yeah, I mean, I think it has changed dramatically because um, when I came in, I came with an investment banking background. So I didn't have any operational experience in investment banking. Everyone that's there is crazily motivated, is uh, ready to work 16 hours a day, right? So there's nothing around people management or anything related to this. People just kind of do uh, whatever they need to do. Um, and uh, going into a company is, is something just very, very different. So I'd say in the very beginning, I was I was trying to find my way, right? And, and how, how to go about this. And when I look at myself today, and it's a huge journey for myself in terms of personal growth. If you think about how you do the job as CFO compared to, you know, all the other CFOs out there, what do you think you actually do differently compared to your peers? I think for, for me, it's a lot about um, personal relationships and it's a lot about uh, team due to the fact that my background is more coming from the investment banking, fundraising, M&A, that kind of side. I'm not the full expert in accounting controlling, for example, right? And that's okay. But what I do here is I really rather become the partner of the people who are heading these areas and aim to um, empower them in the best way that I can, um, help them to uh, have the resources that they require in order to get really to the sustainable outputs Right. And also then just help them to steer themselves to take over full responsibility and accountability for it. And it's okay if you do a mistake as long as you kind of go forward. And I think this uh, level of 
handing over responsibility by but also creating accountability through that is something that I try to focus a lot on and I think which has helped also many of the people um, throughout the years to grow. I have a couple of people who started with me in the ba very beginning who became CEOs or CFOs, which puts them on their own growth journey and something that I, I'm always really happy about. One thing that seems to have really helped you do that at WeFox is stock-based compensation. The fact that if I understand correctly, everybody in the team is a shareholder. Is that something you guys believe very strongly? Absolutely. There's always needs to be an equilibrium of a couple of things. There needs to be a strong purpose. There needs to be a strong goal, but there needs to be also compensation. And we, from the beginning, did this and we had a few conversations uh, with people, um, uh, venture capitalists told us, look, this is something important. And we said, okay, yes, we, we strongly believe. And then we had to figure out how to do it. <laughs> and so we just went to Google and uh, we said, okay, uh, stock-based compensation for employees. And we, by chance, found a plan, I think it was Wealthfront, which said, uh, we have set up a program that is uh, a, a little bit more open and, and distributes out a little bit more to employees. So it's going to be a little bit more dilutive for everyone. But uh, at the same time, we believe it's a strong enabler of keeping the best kind of talent around. So we always set the goals a little bit too high for us. And, and I think for this, then having also the people motivated by having a share in the organization is something really relevant. Uh, talented people today have so many different options in terms of which company they spend time on. Do they go to a more advanced company, get higher salaries, or do they take the full risk of going into a really young organization that, that might work out or might not work out? And I think this needs to be also remunerated based on stock compensation. Here, I really see that right, if we could get towards a standardized contract across Europe, obviously very difficult. If it's easier to understand, shorter contracts. You mean like the same share option contract that every company in the country would use just as standard? Yes, because I think one of the biggest limitations in, in stock compensation is do people understand it? Because if you don't understand, you don't value it. Very easy. And it, there's we've done a lot of education over the years. I also spend a lot of my time on it. But if there would be a standard contract that people could say, wow, this is on the, I don't know, government website. Uh, there's full trust in this. Uh, it's very easily understood. It's, it's not like, you know, these normal lawyer contracts that give you 20, 30 pages of gibberish. Yeah, I remember doing um, at Just Eat, we gave share options to literally everybody, including including our call center. And I remember doing like an all hands with some folks in our call center explaining what their options were going to be worth when when we IPO'd. And some of them made, you know, 2x, 3x their, their salaries through the IPO. And they were just amazed. You know, it's like, wow, these things are actually worth something. It's incredible. I've also done something similar where I've done an all hands for the entire company to explain it, um, what exactly does it mean? And some people right directly get it and are super motivated for it. And others just say, oh, yeah, you know, it's it's maybe just a piece of paper and maybe it's going to come and maybe it's it's not going to come. And so really around getting this buy-in and making it as easy to understand as possible, having these success stories explained and saying, look, if you do this, then there could be something that comes out of it, I think are extremely relevant in order to further push it. And I think it's it's something that's extremely important for the entire European startup scene. Yeah, and I think it's also just about startups being more generous. In the US, generally, companies are more generous to their employees with this, and you get much more of a sense that, that we're all in it together. 
Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, European companies are slowly moving there. I, I think that's we've been trying to go in this direction. I think over the years, we've passed out a significant uh, number of of the cap table. Um, so there is triple digit millions worth of value with the employee base, um, and I think more companies need to need to follow because it's purpose and the goals and also compensation. And then more people will be in, will be looking at this and saying, "Oh, wait, this is actually." a really credible way to go. You use stock, you also, of course, use bonuses. Um, how do you use bonuses in, in the finance function in the wider organization to, to, to complement what, what, what you're already doing with stock? We try not to use any cash bonuses. So we do fixed salary and equity compensation outside of sales teams. Sales teams, I think it's a, it's important um, there. In any other teams, we try to have no bonuses. Maybe once or twice something comes up, no, no cash bonuses. Maybe once or twice it comes up, but generally we don't believe it. We also not tie any goals to bonuses. This goes back to the point, right? So we have always set our goals much higher. Some people have said we are lunatics, right? To us, some people have said you're absolutely crazy, right? And we said no, we are going to always aim for something that's much, much higher than anyone else is, because that's going to allow us to get towards um, something much bigger than anyone else. And if you connect cash bonuses to goal setting, that just doesn't work out because then it goes exactly into the different direction. Because what will people do? Either you set the goals for them and then it's like, okay, there's no accountability or they set the goals for themselves. But if they know that their cash bonus is dependent on it, then obviously they set it in a way that they 100% know that they <laughs> are able to achieve it. And that's why we completely try to disconnect. So why is sales the exception? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know. That's probably a, a philosophical one around what kind of, who is the person? I think I think generally sales is a very transactional uh, basis. It's more clear, right? If you do a sale, there's a very clear event that you can say, look, this is now it happened and you get now for something for the sale. In finance, if you implement a new tool that has automated and allows the finance function to become much more um, um, much more automated as an organization, it's it's not as clear to kind of track it, right? There's a lot more around it. There's maybe more people. It's not one single person that has worked on it. So uh, I think as soon as there's anything around more innovation, as soon as there's more like a group, as soon as it's not really just transactional, that's when I think uh, just like this, this compensation part gets to this limit. And in sales, it's just much more straightforward and money is just much more important. Yeah, I think you'd also probably struggle to hire the best salespeople if, if your pitch said, you know, we don't give you a bonus. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I agree. If you think about like KPIs and measures, how do you do that for the finance function itself? Um, you know, because it, it can be easy with a salesperson just to say, how many deals did you sell or how much money did you bring in? But, you know, for a, an accounts payable analyst, whatever, um, it could be more challenging to, to really set the right KPIs. Yes. Um, and I think that is a challenge. And I think it's always about keeping it simple. Um, that's that's at the end what it's about. And um, that counts for finance as the whole, as same as the whole organization, right? You need to just understand what are your main drivers and and then really focus on a couple of ones and, and, and keep them also consistent because that's then the ones that you will optimize, optimize on. For finance, I think it's really about goal setting, right? So the way that we've been looking at it is we've, we've tried all kinds of different ways over the years. Um, we've done OKRs also for many, many years right now. We've done an overall strategy and we've 
um, then have goals that connect to the overall ones. And, and so it's, it's more around for finance, I'd say it's a combination out of KPIs and also more qualitative facts. Right? So what is it that we are looking to achieve? We have a, a vision also for the finance team, right? So we want to really become the co-pilot of the business. Um, and we have a couple of rules in how to get there. And we have also what, and we want to become the most automated finance team that's out there. Um, and, and for this then, Right. We then try to connect. Okay. So what does it mean for, I don't know, the accounts payable team or anyone else in terms of what can we do this year, uh, next to any kind of ongoing, uh, tasks to uh, get a step closer onto this journey, onto this journey. And there we set really just goals. There's also a clear uh, list of priorities in terms of how to get towards them. And then for more, we call it BAU tasks or business as usual. There we just work with standard deadlines, right? We have, I don't know, closing calendars, right? Until a certain date, this needs to be delivered. And then everyone just needs to have a little bit of time also left over in order to be able to work on something um, on something new. What day do you close at the beginning of the month? Until the 8th. And on the broking side, it always takes us a little bit longer because we have a waiting to the insurance company. Um, and we obviously are looking to get this even, even faster um, through implementing more uh, more technology. Yeah. How do you think about growth versus profitability? This is obviously one of the most important judgment calls that the CFOs make and that the leadership teams make in in, in high growth businesses. Uh, I imagine recently, given what's been happening in in um, public markets, maybe that equation has shifted a bit in favour of profitability. How do you think about that now as CFO? Yeah, I think it's you need to have a clear path towards profitability from the very beginning. I think you need to monitor this from day one. Even if you're in a in a complete growth phase, then it needs to be always needs to be clear what needs to be done in order to become uh, profitable. I think that's that's very very important, and and so. I mean, the way that we do it is that we track our performance based on uh, channels and we look really into what channel is already profitable in a certain market. Um, and what we then do is uh, we have, for example, a very strong um, exclusive advisor channel in Switzerland. Uh, and then we say, okay, what have been the best practices from Switzerland and how can we bring this into Germany? And then we say, okay, look, uh, we exactly know how to get this channel profitable in one country. And now we're going to take the learnings from this to Germany, right? And we say, okay, in Germany, we're going to build it up. We create a business case. We say, this is how long it's going to take us also to bring this channel into profitability. We know exactly how it is. And then obviously it's always about, you need to, from the beginning, make sure that on a unit, you are able to make money and you need to have unit economics strongly under control in order to be able to, you know, continue to invest. And even if you hold P&L, maybe for this channel is negative, that's fine, right? If it's a, if it's something that you're building up, then then that's okay. But you know how to get towards profitability. And I think what's happening in the market, especially in InsurTech that you're referring to, I think for us, we really have this unique setup that we have a distribution and an insurance company. And I think what many of the players have seen right now is that it's very difficult to build up a book in insurance at a profit straight from the start, right? It's it's like a game of scale, right? You need to get to a certain level of scale uh, until you can have huge profitability. And I think what we have is we have commission revenues and we have our own premium. So we don't always need to grow at kind of as much as we can on the premium side, right? If we we only underwrite business where we know from the beginning on or where we have a clear hypothesis that this is going to be profitable business. If we are not 100% certain, right, then we sell third-party insurance companies that have an appetite for this specific risk 
that we are looking to sell. And this is something that has been profitable from the very beginning. And I think this has allowed us over the years to grow much faster. This has allowed us to uh, burn less capital than many of our competitors. And this has allowed us to have a much clearer path towards profitability also today. But you must still, I imagine, have judgment calls and disagreements with the team about how much to actually invest. You know, you've got an incredible model with, with amazing logic. So there must always be a temptation to just say, you know, let's put another 10, 20 million into this to get even more growth. How do you draw those lines? How do you ultimately make those decisions? I've learned over the years to also say, just say no and and just stay with it, right? And then it's just the way it is. And then, you know, there will be people who are unhappy around this and will explain to me that I uh, don't understand this correctly. And that's, I think, something that as a CFO, you just need to be, you just need to be able to cope with, right? You're not going to be, the perfect friend, I think that's the combination of having strong connections into the organization so that you have a strong personal basis, but then also being able to have constructive conflicts with people, right? A conflict doesn't need to be always negative. A conflict can also be something very constructive and you need to be ready to have this conversation. And I'm very happy to be convinced in a different direction. Um, if people have the right kind of level of arguments, have the underlying financials, have thought it through in detail, can show me a plan in terms of how to how this is going to pay back, then I'm absolutely open to change my mind, right? But if people haven't worked this out in detail and tell me, yeah, yeah, it's it's going to come, then it's a very easy um, it's a very easy no um, kind of for me. The way I do the target setting is that I give the goal of 100% year over year growth organically. And then I let the, we have a decentralized organization by now. So there is a country lead and the country has a very small finance team. So they work it out themselves and say, in order to get towards this 100% growth, um, this is what I require, right? And then we have a session as part of the budgeting process to challenge, to understand it in detail, right? And that's then also already kind of limiting it a little bit in terms of which direction we're going. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, in my experience, every time you follow that process, you add all the numbers up across geographies. It's always too much money. Your countries are always asking you for more than the group can afford. And you've then got to make those trade-offs and say, you know, we're going to double down in Germany, but not in Switzerland or whatever it might be. Yeah, absolutely. And we do this. And we're lucky enough that our country performance actually has been improving throughout the years. So the, so the countries actually, you know, we didn't need to have um, too crazy of these conversations within the countries. And it's then also what is the level of innovation that we want to drive as an organization, right? Where's the line? Where does it stop? Right? How do we make our advisors, I don't know, even um, more productive, right? How can we support them to uh, be able to consult even better, right? How can we make the um, journey even more customer-centric, right? And so what are the channels that we look at most and, and how do we make them support in order to be able that the countries will be able to grow significantly? You've been incredibly successful at raising money. I think your last round was... 650 million at a, at a 3 billion valuation. How do you divide responsibility between yourself as CFO and your, your co-founder, Julian, CEO, to, to make that happen? We, by now, have really optimized this over the years. And we've established a funnel, right? So it's the same kind of way how, I don't know, maybe in the sales process it works. So we have a funnel and um, Julian is the person or the CEO is the person who is the responsible to 
pitch right in the very beginning to tell exactly what is the company about, why are we amazing today, why are we even more amazing in the future, right, in order to really bring people to be extremely interested. And that's normally what we do. So he takes the, the first kind of level. These can be individual meetings, can be conferences, anything likes. And then once it, um, it becomes a bit more concrete, right, then we do the next kind of meeting together. We talk a little bit more in detail, right, from overall who we are and the strategy in terms of what is it today. And then the more and more that we get uh, closer to business performance and so on. That's when kind of I, I take over and I have a small team, right? So we are actually in total, including me, three people in this in, investor team. And we've also in the past been using support of uh, investment banks. And I think if you're a small team, then right, it, 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 it can be helpful. But I, I think it's you need to be the full owner kind of of the process. And it starts really by having prepared extremely well. I mean, something really basic, but I think very important because there's always so many, so many things that you need to kind of be um, be holding up in the air. So really make sure that when you kick things off, and sometimes things just kick off at times because you get inbounds from people and you need to be ready. So always try to have your things in line, always have it prepared so that when things start, you can be proactive right, and not reactive. If you are pushed into a direction of needing to be reactive that you, I don't know, need to have so many investor requests by then because you have so many in the funnel that you're just being pushed in between, then you're losing control, then you're losing momentum in the process. And that's when processes go sideways, from my opinion. If you've prepared well, if you have a good data room, business model, unit economics, if you have, I don't know, a couple of standard questions already answered before, if you're aligned in the management team, if you've done all of these things already beforehand, then it's going to be much easier to answer all of these questions much more straightforward and you stay in complete control and you rather um, push, push the investors into a direction. So I try to give internally us like a 24-hour SLA in terms of answering to any kind of request um, and 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 be able then to kind of really move through all of the requests in in a in a in a, in a really fast way. If you're in this sort of luxurious position that I imagine you've been in of having a choice of investors, right? You, lots of people who want to back the company. You've got to run your process and, and figure out who you want. How do you go about evaluating that? I think of it as kind of you've got the valuation and then you've got other factors, you've got everything else. What is the sort of relative weight in your mind? Is it like, you know, 50-50 between the valuation? Is it like it's 99% valuation and 1% everything else? How do you think about the balance of those things? Yeah, I think over the years, we've been into all kinds of different situations. Uh, in the last race, I mean, that was uh, the easiest race that we've done. It, it took, I think, four weeks to get the interest. We could have raised a billion there. Um, and we had even kind of more people around and we had to limit it at some point in order to kind of keep a good level of uh, yeah, funds and also then obviously, um, then obviously dilution. In my opinion, it's a lot about, especially with the lead investor, it's a lot about uh, personal connection, um, right? Because a little bit what I said before in terms of how I try to also kind of be connected to um, everyone that works closely together with you. The same is with your lead investor, because that's a that's a person that is going to be around or should hopefully be around for many, many years to follow. And this person, you need to have a very good trust relationship with you. So that's, I think, uh, something extremely important because you they're very likely going to join the board and you need to have people on your board who 
can be very open with you, but at the same time can also be very supportive. So you need to be able to have difficult conversations on board level. Um, and this needs, they always need to come from a way of how do we together get better, right? And an understanding that not everything is going to be perfect at all points in time, right? And this doesn't mean that it's it's all going to go bad, right? If things are not working out perfectly, it's just something that needs to be worked on and you need to have solutions and you need to develop solutions together and then really come out much stronger for it. And so I think it's next to this entire topic of valuation, uh, obviously it's a very, very important part of who do you have around, what can they add to the table um, and also what have they done in the in the past. Yeah. You mentioned earlier um, share options and you know what policymakers can do to to make that easier in terms of you know having a, some standardized arrangement. Is there anything else when you think about policy um, in Europe, is there anything else European policymakers could be doing to produce more unicorns like uh, like WeFox? I think the two things that need to be worked on are tech visas, um, so make it much easier to um, for people to come to Europe as a whole and Germany very specific. I think Germany, to be honest with their new government of having a less conservative government now in place, actually has a big chance to uh, work on this. Uh, I always, um, my, my kind of, my best example here is that there was a mandatory German test, um, when people wanted to come to Germany. And we, at WeFox, our company language is English, right? I mean, that's absolutely normal for us. Everyone here speaks English. That's absolutely fine. So there's no need for a person who, I don't know, joins us in the Berlin office to be able to be fluent in German. Obviously, if they like to, we offer courses. You can learn it over the years, but I just find it, ridiculous that this is something that if there's a, I don't know, a super talented developer or I don't know, someone that is extremely good in a certain area is limited by language in the world that we're living in today. And there's, there's probably much more in detail. So I think really the two things that need to be worked on are tech visas, much faster, much easier, bringing talented people into the countries. Um, I think that's something that is going to be extremely helpful. Diverse backgrounds just add more. And also then it's this of really making sure that also the compensation part is supported, right? It is stock compensation. For me, it is something around taxation of what are employees taxed. If you're taxed with what you said also, at, at just eat, I don't know, the people from the call center there with 50% at the end, then that's just a lot more than if you tax with, with capital gains at 25%, right? So really making sure that we try to incentivize people to go the risk and join um, young organizations that then will be responsible for and all kinds of future jobs across Europe. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. You're obviously, it's been clear through the conversation, you, you are a, uh, a passionate person. You're highly energetic. You're incredibly passionate about, about WeFox and what you're doing and, and about business in general. What is it personally that gets you up in the morning and, and makes you so passionate about doing all this? I think it's around really having fun and having a, uh, getting a, a sense of achievement and running. And and so I, I don't know, I've been a very competitive person all my life. That's why I love our company purpose of 10x better. Um, I don't know, it's just everyone has their own things. <laughs> For me, it's this, whether it's in business or in sport, um, I try to be the best. Uh, I hate to lose. Uh, I need to work on it <laughs> for sure. Um, but Right. It's, it's, um, I'm motivated by, by really seeing things that are working out by really understanding in terms of how do we get towards the next level. I'm a 
strong optimist. I always believe that there is a solution um, at the end, right? I think my favorite saying is, um, it'll be okay at the end. If it, if it's not okay, it's not the end. So I'm always, um, I always know that there is something that can be done. Um, and I think it's, it's really around meeting all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, um, working with them together, have a clear purpose, a clear goal of where we want to get to. We, for example, uh, want to become the number one insurance player in the world by 2030. Again, right? That's uh, a relatively big goal. Um, and again, some people will say, this is crazy. This is something that motivates me, right? And um, I just think the people that we have here at WeFox are really great. I think one thing that has suffered over the last two years is obviously the, the entire part with, with COVID that people haven't been meeting each other. Obviously, as an employee, you need to be able to offer hybrid also afterwards. But I think I'm I'm also looking forward to have much more around this, this bringing the, the people back in the right form so that it's not going to be every day, but that people see each other, that you can build up much more culture again and, and really all together strive as a team in order to uh, achieve something crazy. So as you said, it, it'll be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. Um, but sadly, we are at the end. Um, it's It's been amazing talking to you, Fabi. I've really, really enjoyed hearing your insights. Thank you for making the time. Thanks very much.